0: Thank you, listeners of CJSW, for tuning in to Mosaic Talk. Until the end of this year, 2019, we'll be playing our newest podcast titled Finding Common Ground. Find more information about the podcast on canadiancmf.com. From Treaty 6, 7, and 8 lands, I'm Iman Bukhari.
1: And I'm Irfan Chaudhry, and you're tuning in to the Common Ground podcast. What do young Albertans think about what is going on in the province? Do they see any hope in looking past the hateful noise that appears to be dividing the country? Working at McEwen University, I'm always inspired by the students I work with, who are just looking to make positive change for themselves and their future counterparts. We have seen time and again young people standing up, countering and confronting hate in many different ways. During our last provincial election, we saw young people protest in the masses when the usefulness of gay-straight alliances in schools was questioned and then politicized by a number of political candidates. While one demographic seems to want to hit the reset button on social progress, our younger demographic wants to push this and ensure the spaces they occupy and the province they live in is a welcoming and inclusive place for all.
0: My personal work with Canadian Culture Mosaic Foundation has led to numerous anti-racist and multicultural initiatives with youth from Generation Z and millennials. Our annual anti-racism arts festival is one of the ways where we're able to organize teams across the nation to participate in anti-racist arts initiatives, such as the 48-hour film challenge. Over the years, we've been able to host this festival in various major cities and have gained a lot of positive feedback from youth. As well, our recent Race Issues publication, a comic book about microaggressions experienced by racialized youth in Canada, is an example of this. Although the book provides examples of everyday microaggressions teen face, it also provides an opportunity to not just call it out, but have a conversation about why it's harmful and what the solutions can be. Having presented this particular initiative across various schools in Alberta, I personally feel really optimistic about the younger generation and their stance against hate in our province.
1: Many young people in Alberta are seeing what is happening around them and are empowering themselves and others to be the change they want to see. One such person is Riley Osadchuk, the current president of the Student Association of McEwen University. For Riley, a lot of the work they have been doing stems from a deep personal connection to their own lived
2: experience. I've been hated for marginal things, like the way I assert myself isn't ladylike. Um, I've been hated for my sexual orientation. I've been hated for wearing uniform that represents the oppression of marginalized communities. As an activist with lived experience, as someone who identifies as an LGBTQ2S plus community member, I have experienced a lot of hate as someone who is white, able-bodied, straight-passing, and also cis-passing, I have observed many peers who don't hold those identities uh, being harassed, ridiculed, and hated for who they are. I feel as though people's ignorance regarding these particular issues is a lack of education. When I am posed with these sort of questions or people are getting angry about these specific things, I like to direct them to resources that, if they genuinely care and want to know from a good place why these things are in place, then cool, they will read what I send them. If, if they don't, then I just kind of don't bother because why waste your own time and energy? trying to educate someone who doesn't really care.
1: In Alberta, one of the most heated discussion points at the provincial political level directly impacted the opportunities and outcomes for young people specifically. Examples included a rollback of minimum wages for young people under the age of 18, a re-examination of how provincial diploma exams are weighed, and perhaps, and most impactful, the questioning of the need and purpose of gay straight alliances in schools. As with a lot of topics, the negative sentiment regarding these discussions can clearly be seen on social media platforms.
2: Facebook only recently announced that its policy regarding the prohibition of hate speech would branch out to banning white nationalist content. This announcement was made in March, just a couple of months ago, approximately two weeks after a white supremacist in New Zealand broadcasted a massacre of 50 people while they were in their place of worship. I think it's completely unacceptable that it took this magnitude of a tragedy for Facebook to decide that it's time to ban white nationalist content. Allowing people with hateful ideas to maintain membership on such a large platform allows for them to feast on the outcasts of society, the loners, the hurt, the vulnerable, those who are heavy with resentment and make them feel like they belong, like they have a home in their cliques. That is how hate groups are organized. That's how hate is perpetuated. And those who run social networking platforms are complacent, complacent in the effects of their actions, or they just genuinely do not care. So I think that's completely unacceptable, and social networking platforms need to do better. At this point, these groups have already formed. They're, they're, already, they're already gathering together. They already have different platforms to connect with each other. If this would have been the standard to begin with, I'm sure that these things would have not it wouldn't have gotten as bad it is as it is right now
1: with the increased demands on young people to work to do well in school and to be advocates for change some might say that young people don't really care about what's going on around them so the question becomes do students really care about the issues
2: I think students care I just think that students have so much pressure put on them already work life school financials making sure that that they're surviving that they don't have the time, they don't have the energy, they don't have the capacity to really go out and do these things. A lot of this advocacy or a lot of this work isn't completely accessible to everyone. You really have to go out and look for ways to join an organization or what have you to promote, like, love.
1: Another young advocate and activist is Daliso Mwanza, a recent graduate from McCune University. During his time at McEwen University, Delisa was heavily involved in many human rights-related initiatives, both inside but also outside of campus. As a racialized person, human rights is a very personal issue for him, and he has seen and witnessed different forms of hate. He offers a very insightful response on what he defines as hate.
3: People who hate are usually coming from a place of pain themselves, um, and they need to direct that. that that pain somewhere else. My family, we lived, we're Zambian, but we lived in South Africa for about nine years, and this was 96, so just the breaking of apartheid, right? And my father was a doctor and my mom was a nurse, and they experienced a mass amount of hate from people who are, like, if we follow our tribe line, we're still from the same tribe as them, but they hated us because we're foreign. They were How I understood it, how my dad tried to explain it to me was that they were experiencing hate from somewhere else, so they didn't know where to put their hate, so they had to put it to to the foreigners. So hate is always this kind of, it's a a trickling down of of pain, I think. Hate starts with pain and, and misunderstanding, I think.
1: With all the hate that is out there, the struggle appears to be real for many, many people.
3: The thing about social media is it creates filter bubbles, right? Everyone has their own little small group of community or whatever they have or their identity, their main identity. So nothing really can come in and nothing really gets out. So when they come into contact, like different filter bubbles getting into contact, it's a much bigger volatile like kind of explosion that happens between groups and there's no understanding that's going to come from that. It's just going to be... You did this, you no, know, you did this, you did this, because I think I this is how you are. I don't really know, but this is just the assumption I have of you. So it's all based off of ideologies that are just perpetuated by uh, not being able to actually see that person's face, but only the silhouette. We're all struggling. That's something that we can all agree, is that currently in this world, what we're all sh- like experiencing is struggle, compared to what a 1% or um, the upper echelon, or whatever you want to call it. The middle class is huge it has grown so big so we're all so tense and like at like this like hyper like fear of something might happen to us so when you implement something that's new or you bring in something that's new it 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 kind of shakes you up a little bit and it's not to even like not to even make it like it makes it worse because the politicians or even some people that we look up to are now telling us that we are supposed to really fear those people like even starting from i think the moment of this sort of fear from the top down it it is never safe like grassroots fear like it is a problem but like there is a bigger problem i think at as a as a top level coming down because that that disseminates the whole hegemonic belief or the hegemonic like understanding of the the mass population so i think it's a structural issue and it's also a racial issue or a ethnic issue that might be coming around.
1: He also offers a very positive outlook on how different hate groups, like the Soldiers of Odin, don't have as loud of a voice as anti-hate groups.
3: I hear those names and I'm like, okay, this is an organization. Uh, they probably do have backing. They probably do have connections to other things. But what I've seen currently is that our community is so strong, like the people who are anti those establishments or those organizations we put it down immediately like there's no place for it like to like exist it sucks that it exists that's the thing like being able to like walk on the street and see a group or on online and see a group like mobilizing it hurts because you're like oh i thought we're past this already and that notion is like maybe something we should start to revisit and understand is that we're not past it it's always been here and it always It's going to still perpetuate for generations at this point. If we're being realistic about hate, we need to play the long game. But looking at those organizations and then compared to the anti-hate groups, it makes me feel safer knowing that there's a lot of people on our side Mm -hmm. compared to those grassroots hate groups.
1: Overt and covert symbols of hate are starting to creep into many offline settings. Deliso shares his observations on what he's seen and how this further creates tense
3: situations. A few times I have seen people with MAGA hats like walking around, but those have been quickly stopped as hey, uh why are you wearing that here? you know this is a university, there's, like, different types of people here, you shouldn't be doing this, you know what that hat represents. And they're obviously wearing it to get a rise, right? Like, that's the main issue is they wear the hat, they come to universities where they know that there is an, an array of thought that is saying that that is bad, so they just want to start a fight. A lot of the times, people, as humans, we do things that are usually funny. I think humans are pretty funny. I think we're pre- like because we're readable. We're able; to, you can see how we behave and all the the sort of small things we do. So, if someone else is has an abundance of something that we don't have, usually we try to bring them down and not like allow them to show that abundance, right? So, if someone is coming from a point of hate um, and they see that someone else has a lot of love, they might try to play it another emotion that they have as like anger which is close to hate but not really hate so they forget and neglect all the love right so it's that bringing down so that we're at the same level and now we can bicker and whatever I don't know as much as you want to be putting above yourself on someone else or something like that but I can never really understand why people want to do that sort of thing but I I think it is a way of being on top of someone else so it's I can find Instagram or Twitter to be um, educational tools as well. But a lot of people go to uh, Instagram or Twitter for that sort of, like, the water in the cup river thing, right? So, like, you want to just kind of take whatever you you can get at that time, right? Um, And a lot of the time when you grab, if you're just using and using Instagram in a way that isn't productive, it can create ideologies of hate. It can... Create ways of thinking that I don't necessarily think are productive for our society because it's so frequently changing and it's being turned over instead of people just sitting down with an actual thought and then thinking about it and being like, okay, how do I change that in my life? Right, like using it as a, um, like a kind of a workbook. Right.
0: While university students are at the forefront of countering some of these negative narratives out there, there is also some work happening at the high school and junior high levels as well. I had a chance to sit down and chat with Barbara Silva. Barbara is not a youth, but a community activist, giving a lot of her time to advocate for children's rights to an accessible, quality, and equitable public
4: education. Most of the people who are having the conversations, who are discussing education, who are, and I hate the word stakeholders because it commodifies education, but but the stakeholders around this topic tend to be Caucasian or, or, or white men. And so the conversation isn't even happening at that level. The conversation is happening with the students. The conversation is happening with the parents and the families who are continuously marginalized. But I don't think anything real or substantive is being done in this province to talk about the way that children of color, children in poverty, newcomer children are experiencing education in Alberta today. Not a thing. Through
0: Barbara's work with Support Our Students Alberta an Action Against Racism in Education, she hears from many concerned parents and students talking about systemic racist issues in our education system.
4: There's no recourse for them. They can go to the principal and they can go to the administration and they're told their experiences aren't really happening. They're told they're imagining these things. They're told there are no resources for them. They don't know what to do. This is why some people come and tell us their stories. And and honestly, most often people come and tell us their stories and we say, we know this is happening. We're sorry you're having this experience. You are not alone. This is oppressive. This is systemic racism. You have the right to a quality education. And, and most oftentimes they write back and say, thank you for validating my experience because everybody in the system is telling me that this is not happening, that there is no racism, that there is no oppression, that the experience I'm having aren't real, and all they really want is for someone to validate that. Obviously, what they really want is to break down those barriers, but in most cases, it's not even acknowledged that it exists.
0: Although systemic racism in schools is no easy problem to fix, Barbara believes it's crucial to do something about it within the classroom setting, as children are more open to
4: learning. Kids are at their most open and able to interact across differences. So we think it's really important now more than ever to not silo children into homogeneous environments. At, at a public school, we should have Christian children learning learning in the same room as Muslim children, Jewish kids, kids with disability, LGBTQ kids. We need that diversity in the classroom, very inclusive, because if not, if we silo all these children based on all of these differences, What's society going to look like in 20 years? In 20 years, when all of these kids have grown up in their homogeneous environments and then have to go to work together or have to live together, they've never really interacted. And that's dangerous because we all know that it's, it's really difficult to be unkind to someone that you know, right? And part of the problem with racism is, is an ignorance about other cultures and an ignorance about how other people live and a, a lack of empathy, for other people and we eliminate so much of those barriers by having children learn across all of those differences so for us public education is is the great equalizer and it it, it is you know, at at the risk of sounding idealistic. It's the place where we can solve so many of these problems because it's where kids are exposed and they're the most open to change and differences. There is no quick fix. And and one of the aspects of that is absolutely having representation as as, not just in administration and not just at the um, ministry level, but teachers. We need more brown teachers. We need more teachers with disabilities. We need more LGBTQ teachers. We need Teachers, kids, we know the single biggest reason why ki- why kids do not finish school is because they feel marginalized and disengaged. They don't feel valued. And when they see curriculum that represents them, teachers that represent them, they're more likely to stay engaged and graduate. And that is something that benefits society as a whole, to have an educated population that can contribute back, put back into that pot of taxation. So absolutely, there has to be a a, a bigger focus on teacher training, and drawing people from different cultures into, uh, into the workforce and education.
0: And at the end of the day, it's not just about schools and teachers, or only about youth. We all have a role to play. Without using diversity or our own family or peers as an excuse for being inclusive, real change requires real work to be done. Which needs a lot of effort and actually looking and empathizing with the experiences of others around you without denying their valid experience
4: that's really really interesting because it's not just about having a black friend. How often do you go out? You know a black person. there might be Asian kids on your hockey team. Do you go out to dinner with them? Have you invited them to your home? Have you listened to their experiences? Um, you know ha- have you have you actually interacted? with people who are different than you, not just know them. Because I think currently, and I had this discussion just earlier today with with, uh, with a friend of mine, that diversity, that word now, has absolved us of achieving any real inclusion or breaking down any barriers because we, we've ticked the box. My hockey team's diverse. Yes, you have kids of color on there. You have not included them. You have not made um, ways to knock down barriers for them to feel accommodated in your environment. So diversity or having the the brown friend isn't enough, you've got to go further than that, for sure.
1: In our final episode, we reflect on the current state of hate in Alberta. Do we have any hope of finding common ground in the face of increasing political and social polarization?